Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. We are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Rita Koganson. Dr. Koganzen is a professor of politics and the associate director of the Program on Constitutionalism and Democracy at the University of Virginia. Her research focuses on themes of childhood, education, and family and political thought. For our spring 2021 issue, Rita wrote a fascinating essay titled, A Tale of Two Educational Traditions. In her piece, she argues that much of the contemporary debates about education can be traced to two distinct pedagogical philosophies that have coexisted in America, though not always amicably, since the colonial era. A robust, small-R Republican approach, which favors unity, uniformity, equality, and institutionalism, and a liberal, anti-institutional tradition that views family as the rightful locus of education, and eyes with suspicion the attempts of the state to displace parents and communities and that essential work. But rather than trying to settle this centuries-old debate, Rita argues that American policymakers should favor a hybrid system that embraces both the structure of the Republican tradition while making room for and even celebrating liberal dissent. Rita, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Rita, since we've already kind of laid out those two traditions that are really the thrust of your piece, we figured we'd just start with the Republican tradition, the one you mentioned first in the piece. So tell us a little bit about what are the ambitions of this approach to education and what are its roots in the American education system that we know today? Yeah, well, I mean, we see the Republican tradition immediately from the outset. I mean, right from the American founding and especially right after the Constitution was ratified in the decades immediately following the 1780s and 1790s, there's this sort of huge explosion of pamphlets and essays and newspaper editorials about schools. And all of these very famous figures that you know we still know today, Noah Webster, Thomas Jefferson, obviously, Benjamin Rush, a little bit lesser known, but very important at the time, writing all these things about what kind of schools the new republic needs. And they all assume that the answer is, well, first of all, schools, right? Not private tutors, not your parents teaching you at home, nothing like that. And I mean, the innovation even was that a lot of people were writing that we need female academies, schools for girls, and not just schools, but systems of schools, right? There should be state schools. And that doesn't always mean free schools in the 18th century. You may have to pay a fee, but it would be a small fee and the school would be publicly administered. And so that was the the prevailing assumption of almost everybody who was writing on education in the late 18th century. And the question just becomes, well, you know, should we be teaching Latin in this school or not? Right. Those are the debates rather than should there be a system of schools? And, you know, some people are proposing even a national system of school. Benjamin Rush goes that far to say, well, there should be, you know, systems that are sort of tied to each other between the states until you get a national university. And I think George Thomas has actually written a book about this idea of the national university as a kind of culmination of these different levels of schooling up through the university level. So that's a pretty prominent part of the educational discussion. And the goal of that was largely civic and secondarily economic in the sense that you know people like Jefferson and Rush were primarily concerned with the formation of republican or democratic citizens and you need some baseline level of education for that but you also need to go to school with your neighbors in order to overcome at that time the most pressing sorts of differences sectarian differences right so that you can be able to live together in peace and not kill each other 
because you have known these people from early childhood, from your youth, and you've played with them. And so you become accustomed to them and you learn how to overcome your, your conflicts and disagreements. There's also a sort of secondary concern with economic viability that everybody needs to be able to own and manage property in this republic. And so you need some baseline of public education in order to ensure that for everybody. And so, you know, Robert Corum writes, he's a school teacher in Delaware, writes a, a long pamphlet on the economic necessity of public education. And some people just argue both things because both things fit together in presenting a case for schools. So that's the Republican tradition, or that's where it begins in this concern for some kind of uniform account of American citizenship that would be transmitted to all children. And at that point, obviously, in the 18th century, we did not have the state capacity to build a, a system, a national system of schools. You know, Massachusetts is a little further along than other states. You know, New England generally more interested in school building, but nothing systemic. And then by the 19th century, you get a real interest in systematic, you know, construction of a public school system, especially again in New England. Horace Mann is the great pioneer of the public schools. And by the end of the 19th century, you have sort of realized the vision of people like Benjamin Rush and Thomas Jefferson. We do have essentially a national system of public grade schools, what we would today call K through eight schools, elementary schools. And then the interest of reformers, I mean, this is already the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era, and the interest of reformers becomes abolishing child labor, making sure that all children are in school. So you need to make school compulsory for that to be the case, right? And so then there's a push for compulsory schooling laws, largely successful, broadly popular, actually, across the country. Parents want them just as much as, you know, states want them or reformers want them. And after that is where the this, this situation starts to go too far, or at least some of these progressive reformers are also nativists, are also eugenicists, right, are anti-Catholic. And their view is that everybody has to go to public school, that it, not only should there be schools available for everybody, not only should some kind of schooling be compulsory, but actually it has to be public schooling and public schooling only because we don't want children to be allowed to go to these parochial schools where they are going to be taught, you know, anti-American things, right? So that that's kind of becomes the, the early 20th century push. It doesn't really catch on that much. Eventually, the Supreme Court comes and squashes that entire idea with Pierce v. Society of Sisters decision. And that's sort of the end of that. We're going to have private schools. And that's the status quo really on, all through the 20th century. You know, so then we have other kinds of reform movements and the Republican tradition is sort of subsumed into various types of school reform movements, but its ambition never gets as big as it did in the effort to make public schools universal, uniform and compulsory, which was sort of a, a progressive dream. And that's the Republican tradition. And it has, you know, obviously a lot of valuable features in a democracy. People don't have time. They don't have money to educate their children all to the sure. same high level. And the idea is schools are, you know, public schools serve that purpose. So I don't want to take us too far away from the substance of the piece, but I am curious why that was so much the reigning assumption. It seems like pretty uniformly in the early thinkers about education in America. Were there trends in Europe that had been sort of moving in that direction anyway by the time Americans started thinking about education in the New Republic? Yeah, I mean, the trends were going the other way, which is why this is so interesting. I mean, well, that's, that's not fully correct, right? So there is a Republican, a longstanding Republican tradition in European thought, you know, that does take education, state education to be, you know, state, obviously, imagining a much weaker state, but public education to be a kind of central public function. And that is present in the American Revolution. You know, they're reading Republican thinkers from England as well. 
But actually, the primary or sort of most prominent educational treatises of the 18th century are Locke's Thoughts Concerning Education and then later Rousseau's Emile. The founders don't like Rousseau's politics as much, but they do like Emile. And what's really interesting about those two books is they're very anti-institutional. They are against schools. And the founders, you know, you have people like Franklin, all these people who've definitely read Locke, you know, Jefferson certainly read Locke. And they just, they accept the political argument and then they just have nothing to say about the schooling question. Because it seems to them, I think, that it's just impossible here. And I think Franklin is the best example of why it's impossible. It's impossible what Locke is arguing for and Rousseau is arguing for is really an arrangement only suitable to an aristocracy with a landed gentry, with people who have sort of permanent leisure and who can either hire tutors to teach their children or teach their children themselves, which is to say, you know, withdraw from all kinds of other undertakings in life and just devote themselves to being their children's tutors. And that vision is possible if you're wealthy and if you have land and if you have leisure. And in America, there aren't people like that, or there are very few. And, you know, Benjamin Franklin himself kind of embodies this problem. He's the youngest son of 17 children. His father is a tallow chandler, the candle maker. There's no way that they could have possibly afforded a tutor for him, right? Or, or, you know, given themselves over to teaching him. In fact, they couldn't afford more than two years of schooling for him. So that seems to be the American dilemma. And so they're interested in what Rousseau and Locke have to say, but there's no way they can implement it at the institutional, or in this case, the anti-institutional level. And so they, they try, I mean, there are def- different arguments are made to try to get schools that incorporate some of these ideas, which is kind of paradoxical and contradictory. Then there's this other sort of Franklinian understanding, which is we're going to do schools and there's going to be Republican schools. And that's just not going to be the end of education for Americans. It's not going to be the sum of education for Americans. So that sort of, I I think we want to get into how that liberalism was in tension with the Republican tradition and the education system from early on as well. But, you know, you mentioned those names already. So we have John Locke, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Adam Smith, who you sort of attribute the early sort of articulation of Mm -hmm. this liberal alternative to the Republican tradition. So I was wondering if you could take one or two of them and sort of tell us a little bit about their thinking, why they were advocates for the liberal system, or even what that sort of was to them. Sure. So, I mean, Locke and Rousseau are the most famous. Smith has is a little mixed. He does approve some kinds of schooling. But for Locke and Rousseau, the concern is with sort of intellectual freedom, what we might today call intellectual freedom. How do you educate a child so that he's able to, as we would say today, think for himself, right? To to not be bound to the customs and the fashions of his moment and his in the place where he is. And their concern was that schools were tyrannical in a certain kind of sense, that schools enforced intellectual conformity, or at least made it very, very likely that a child would be forced to conform. And so their suspicion of schools comes from the sense that when you put a child into an institution with many other children and very few adult authorities, the real authority becomes other children. And so, you know, Locke especially is concerned with this, that this is going to ruin the character and the virtue of boys if you send them to school. And that, yeah, they'll be a little naive if you teach them at home. They, they're going to be a little bit like country bumpkins, but better to have that and, you know, let them learn how to be sophisticated as adults when they go into the world than to corrupt them early on 
such that they're not able to think for themselves later on. And so both Rousseau and Locke are very concerned with protecting the child from the influences of essentially public opinion. And they think the way to do that is to keep the child at home, you know, sort of in this bubble where it's their parents and maybe the tutor and only other adults that the parents admit, right? No sort of unfiltered influences. And even that the the help, the domestic help was supposed to be kept at arm's length because they too are obviously sources of corruption. So that was their argument. And the, the goal of doing this is obviously that you're going to keep boys away from other boys because it's other children who are a kind of vector for fashion. And they don't even know what they're doing when they tyrannize one another. They just do it because they're like, this is what, you know, everybody has to be like this. They don't even, they don't have reason behind what they're demanding of each other. So that was their argument against schooling. They thought that it would corrupt the ability to think, to think clearly, to think rationally, to be reasonable. And that's fine in an aristocracy, right? But obviously American democracy is going to have to come to some other, it's going to have to find some other ways of protecting intellectual liberty because this kind of living in a bubble on your family estate is not going to be tenable for very many people. Right. And so that kind of naturally brings us to Franklin, which you've already mentioned, Rita, but you mentioned that he did had little schooling himself, was skeptical of the idea of institutional schooling, but he forms, he uses this wonderful phrase, a mischievous American compromise between the institutional individual kind of traditions. Uh, tell us how about his thinking and then how that evolved and how he formed this kind of compromise. Yeah, I mean, he had his own circumstances to contend with, right? His family is poor. He's not not able to, to send him to school for very long. He's very intellectually sort of curious, really ravenous intellectually. And so he educates himself in the sense that, you know, he's, a, he's bound to his brother as a printer's apprentice very early. And he, you know, squirrels away all his free time and all his extra money to buy books, to read books. He stays up all night, you know, reading books that he's borrowed from other people, teaches himself all kinds of things. And then runs away from his brother, breaks his indentures, goes to Philadelphia. And there, I think he, he encounters, or the way he describes it in his autobiographies, is this new possibility of doing it with his friends. I mean, he's always sort of with his friends in Boston, too. But that you can form an association, the Junto, which is what he forms, this kind of social club, with other tradesmen, people in his sort of similar social position, not institutionally educated, but very curious and they have a set of rules and they basically, it's a debating society. They present papers and they debate them. And it's also a networking club. And he sees that, I mean, he calls that the best school of morals in the colony at the time, right? And he calls it a school, though, of course, it is not officially a school. And so I think that's what he sees as the alternative, which is that children are very free in the colonies. There's not a lot of oversight or supervision. Parents are busy. Parents you know, have a lot of kids. They have a lot of other things to worry about. And you can use this freedom, if you channel this freedom correctly, you can allow children to educate themselves. And then they're, by definition, in a sense, free of this problem of conformism, right? And of being sort of forced into beliefs that are not theirs, that they never approved. And so that is great, except that a lot of his friends end up very poorly. And, you know, he's enormously successful, but his, you know, his best friend from Boston, this kid, John Collins, you know, is a, becomes a drunk in his, you know, adolescence and ends up having to go to Barbados and he apparently just dies there. And, you know, he says, he says of this kid Collins, he's great mathematical talent and it's evidently totally squandered. And so I think he sees in his friends that there's a problem. Not everybody is going to respond to this freedom in this really disciplined way that Franklin responded to it. They need some kind of external discipline. And so that's where the school comes in for him. It's a kind of holding cell almost 
right? Where you can take kids who have no other supervision, who are, you know, in cities and constantly exposed to all kinds of temptations and sort of keep them under somebody's eye and protect them from basically self-destruction at an early age. But it still shouldn't be the main source of education. So in a sense, he tries to combine those things. He becomes a real advocate for schooling, donates a lot of money to schools, sets up schools in Philadelphia. But at the same time, in his autobiography, what he promotes is really antithetical to schools, right? It's anti-authoritarian. It's anti, you know, don't believe in these establishments. You have to come to these conclusions yourself. You have to get together with other people and debate them and understand them. And so there's a kind of vision of self-education that is paired with institutional schooling. And it eventually becomes the case that the self-education is a kind of overcoming of the institutional schooling. Mm. You've got to sit through school as a kid, and then you've got to unlearn it all with your friends and come to your own (laughs) conclusions. And that's really the American compromise. And then we see it going forward from Franklin, you know, all through 19th century literature and into 20th century film, where I think is where most people have encountered it. So that's actually my next question. And it's one of my favorite parts of the piece is sort of this catalog. We have everything from Mark Twain, Louisa May Alcott in the 19th century to Henry Adams, psychologist, Jay Stanley Hall. And then of course, Ferris Bueller, who we can't forget. Yeah. So could you could you just talk us through a few of these most like notable examples and, and how they sort of exemplify that kind of compromise that Franklin pioneered? Yeah, I mean, so in the 19th century, you start to get, you know, schools are available to people, kids are going to schools and children's literature, which, you know, we would say Mark Twain is kind of straddles both children and adults. But Tom Sawyer really is a children's book and Huck Finn was read by children, although it has obviously more meaning than what is on the surface. Certainly Louisa May Alcott's, you know, Little Women is is aimed at children. And these books are being written in the second half of the 19th century when kids are going to school and they are anti-school, right? I mean, the argument that you get from, from Huck Finn is, you know, he's he, these teachers are always trying to civilize with an S. They're always trying to civilize me, <laughs> but I won't be civilized. And he actually does learn to read from school. And he's really glad he learns to read in fact, right? And then it turns out like he can't stay in school. He's got to leave. He's got to run away from his father. And, you know, anybody reading that book, even at the the level of a sort of child understanding, sees that real education takes place on the river, right? School is, you know, teaches him to read. And beyond that, he gets nothing from school. And everything that he learns about other people, about America, about, you know, the society that he's living in and its contradictions, it comes from his own experience with Jim going down the river. And, you know, Tom is a kind of more childish case, but nonetheless, like everything he really is learning is what he's doing in the woods with his friends while they're trying to play pirates and kings and all of this kind of stuff. And school is like a sort of annoyance in his life, a necessary annoyance. And that's really, you know, they're heroic boys who who hate school. And you get the same kind of parallel for that in Little Women for girls, which is that, you know, these are girls are a little bit more domestic and compliant than Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, but nonetheless, they're not that compliant. They don't like school. And they, you know, one of the girls doesn't even go to school. She's too shy. And the the youngest daughter is in school in the book, but it's just a disaster. And she clearly would have done better without it. And what really constitutes their education is, you know, putting on these plays in their attic, writing these essays, you know, criticizing each other's writing. And then their sort of experiences with one another in life. And they form their own group of friends in the same way that Huck and Tom are friends and they have their other friends in their town in Little Women. It's for the marches. They are their own friends. And so you get these pictures of, you know, you know, sort of iconic childhood literature 
that is all about how school is just at best a, an annoyance and at worst a kind of, you know, plague. And, <laughs> you know, Henry Adams is writing for adults. He writes his autobiography, obviously not yeah. a children's book, but really sends the same message that institutional schooling in America is backwards looking. It cannot really prepare children for the world that is coming. In his case, you know, he's seeing industrialization and the scientific revolution and especially the technological fruits of the scientific revolution. And that it was doomed, he, you know, he describes his education as sort of doomed from the outset to try to replicate a world that was already passing away. And so he too is very skeptical of schooling, very down on it, and sees education as what he undertook himself when he finished Harvard and went to Germany. And then, you know, he went to Italy after that and traveled and sort of educated himself really against everything that he was taught in schools. And so, you know, that it's, a nice thought, but once you have compulsory schooling, you know, you can't get out of it. And there's real consequences for, you know, cutting school and being truant. And especially once, you know, school achievement becomes a kind of economic prerequisite for, for sort of, you know, stable life, then you can't be Huck Finn anymore. You're going to ruin your life if you do that. Right. And so I think that's where the psychology comes in and where G. Stanley Hall becomes really important because Social science is the language of this new world that Adams fears. And once social science gives approval to sort of childhood rebellion against school, makes it scientifically normal, right? Then you can encourage it and you can kind of sustain it, even though you have a, a really sort of extensive system, sort of systemization of the educational system by the 20th century. High schools are being open. So now compulsory schooling is going to extend further into high school and more and more kids are in more and more institutions. And it seems like escape is impossible, but in a way, psychology, because it, it has this sort of scientific imprimatur of social science, makes it okay, makes it acceptable and gives sort of new life to this, I think, to the liberal tradition by making it an expectation that at a certain age, children will rebel against school. It's normal to hate school, to not want to comply, right? To try to find ways out of it. And that's what, you know, 20th century cinema really celebrates. So you get, you know, it's not, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a great example of it, right? Where he <laughs> literally cuts school and it's like being chased around by the dean and all the depictions of school are just drudgery. You know, it's like the Ben Stein, anyone, anyone. Right. So that, that's like a great and iconic depiction of it. Right. But like all of these movies and all of these television shows treat school as a necessary burden. Like we've got to go. And the great thing about school is we meet our friends there. And then with our friends, we have adventures. And with our friends, we educate ourselves. And with our friends, we learn what life is really about. And it's always like the opposite of what they told us in school. Right. Or at the very least, what they told us in school is not that relevant to the real lessons that we have to learn together. And so that I think is how it sort of transforms itself in the 20th century. And there's a real kind of acceptance of that. Like we celebrate these people. We think Ferris Bueller is great. He's clever, he's witty, he's a hero. And that attitude I think is really at odds with when we're forced to be respectable, right? And speak as, you know, in part of, you know, in public life, the way that we would talk about the schools, which is that we would say they're transformative and they're essential to democracy. And, you know, we need to have good teachers and we need to have strong curricula and good test scores and all of these things. You know, we treat the schools as if they're sacred. But at the same time, the same people think that Ferris Bueller is really great. 
<laughs> and like, that's a con, you know, there's a tension yeah. in that, that I think is really actually salutary for American life because it, it prevents schools from becoming totalizing. It gives us a kind of outlet so that we can get the benefits of school and not succumb to the weaknesses that Locke and Rousseau feared, which is this kind of conformism, this sense that like you have to comply with what the institution and what other kids require of you. Right. And so that kind of brings us to the present day and that, as you've mentioned, Rita, we've got this kind of very unique American compromise between the institutionalism and the anti-institutionalism. But you, I think you actually know this at the beginning of your piece, that there are some scholars today that still insist that really the Republican tradition is the only one. And could you tell us a little bit about people making that argument? Where is that coming from? And what are they most focused on in terms of education debates? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've had the school reform movement, you know, for the last 30 years, which has been really oriented around choice also around accountability and metrics and things like that. But part of the the mechanism that it's sought for improving accountability and improving test scores has been through choice. And that's been kind of strange because usually the Republican tradition doesn't want alternatives to public school. And it really was the opponents to this school choice movement who, who I think have gained a lot of ground in the last decade or so as people have started to walk back a lot of the, the claims about charter schools and vouchers and how much they're going to improve the educational system. So there was this article by Elizabeth Bartolet that was pretty extreme. And she wrote for, I think, the Arizona Law Review, but it, there was a little write-up of it in the Harvard Alumni Magazine that went viral in which she claimed, you know, we have to reevaluate homeschooling and consider it to be sort of presumptively illegal. And until we can discern that in that in any particular case, it's a good fit for the, the child. And, you know, there's just a general sense that, you know, Charters, we're not interested in expanding charter schools. We're not interested in expanding choice. Diane Ravitch, for example, in sort of K through 12 education has not only reversed her own position because she used to be more pro-choice, but, you know, has started to argue sort of similar things. You know, we have to reinvigorate the public school, the neighborhood school, the community school. Everybody really should be channeled into that. There shouldn't be sort of the creaming of the best students into other schools. There shouldn't be vouchers to dilute resources that otherwise would go to the neighborhood school. And I think we've seen that. I mean, that also has come out of concerns about racial inequality and social inequality, that the choice movement is segregating people and is exacerbating those inequalities. So I think a lot of the the criticism of the choice movement has pushed us back towards this sort of republicanism that holds sort of the, the public school, the uniform public school as the best and possibly should be the only option for education in America. Sort of at the edges, you have political theorists arguing, you know, even private schooling is a problem ethically because it exacerbates inequality and racial segregation and things like that. So there has been a kind of resurgence of that. And it was really going strong until 2020, you know. (laughs) And 2020 really threw a wrench into the the sort of progress that the anti-school reform movement was was making and the popularity that it was gaining. One of the things that's so difficult about this this tension is that it it's perpetually a tension, right? We have like, we recognize the legitimacy of the Republican tradition. We want schools, but I like the way you put it at the end of the piece. You say, we want schools, but we, we don't want them to be too good. We don't want to have like schools that are too efficient, too powerful, even while recognizing that we absolutely need them. And so that sort of makes it confusing, I guess, if you're a, if you're a policymaker, what you do with that. And so I was wondering if you could like shed some light on like a particular issue or a particular reform and how that kind of analysis could be applied to help policymakers sort of sort through the considerations and come to a, an adequate sort of compromise. Yeah, well, I can give you sort of two examples. One would be 
the homeschooling question, right? The desire to regulate and, you know, at the further end to just make impossible or, you know, prohibit homeschooling. That's obviously bad. I think from the from the perspective of somebody who's interested in preserving this liberal tradition alongside, you know, good, solid public schools that really do teach and perform well. Right. You need to have outlets for people who are not interested and you need to have other ways of educating. There have to there can't you know, the the idea that we're going to have this one uniform system is in itself, I think, a mistake. And so there need to be ways out of this, of this uniform system. And so I think one aspect of policy should be preserving those ways out for those people who want them on the understanding that will probably always be a minority that, you know, homeschooling, regardless of the fact that we've now all had to do it, you know, is never going to become the majority practice in the United States for the same reasons that it couldn't have been in the 18th century, right? We are still in the same sort of economic situation, but you need to defend the ability of those people who are willing and able to do it to opt out. And, you know, obviously parochial schools, private schools, the whole sort of decentralized system of schooling in the United States, I think is worth defending from a policy perspective, because it does mitigate this fear that Locke and Rousseau had that uniformity is conformist, right? Uniformity is going to enforce one sort of line on everybody, and that that's a danger for intellectual freedom. So even if everybody has to conform to the institution that they're in, if there's a variety of institutions, the resulting society is more intellectually heterogeneous, I think, than if you have just this one system. So that would be one example. More controversially, I think, when we look at the charter schools that have been very successful, the no excuses charter schools, part of what has made them successful is that they are very totalizing right? That a lot of them have increased the number of hours that students have to be in school, have had summer school, right? Have these very strict codes of conduct and behavior and the way that you're supposed to make eye contact with people and respond to people all the time. They've been very successful at raising test scores, but that in a sense is the kind of totalizing school that we should be wary of, right? The kind of school that controls like who you look at all the time, right? And keeps you there for many, many hours a day, many more hours than, you know, a regular public school would and keeps you there over the summers, right? Doesn't give you, doesn't give students really much opportunity to have a life outside of them, right? And in opposition to them. And there, I think, I mean, it's, that's more ambivalent because on the one hand, you know, these schools are effective and it's hard to say like, well, they're effective. We should just not do that, right? And parents are choosing them and it's, you know, they have other options. It's not like they're being coerced into them. And so, you know, I wouldn't say, well, we should shut that down, obviously. But I think that kind of curriculum should at least be a little bit alarming to us from the perspective of this liberal tradition, because it is taking a swath of students and essentially precluding or not totally precluding, but substantially precluding for them the possibility of having this life outside of and against school and this education that takes place outside of and against institutions. And so that's a little worrisome, I think. Yes, Rita, just a final question for you. And just kind of to throw out another example, there's been a lot of debate recently about things like the 1619 Project or critical race theory being included in the curriculums at a local educational level. Is this another instance where it suggests a more liberal approach where there's more alternatives than just one would satisfy different parties in this debate? Or is this just a really contentious debate that's hard to solve? Yeah, I mean, I think that is, is in a way, it's a kind of different question. What does the mm. public school put into its curricula? In, yeah. in a way, students have no say in that. And I don't think that they should. It's not that we would be better off asking and consulting them. 
the debate over what the curriculum is going to look like in a public school district is a debate between various adults and various stakeholders that are grownups. I think, you know, for those people who are concerned that this is a kind of indoctrination or something like that, they should take heart in the fact that the whole point of the liberal tradition is that we don't care what the teachers tell us. <laughs> that often we think that what the teachers tell us is in is by definition nonsense, right? Or foolishness. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, several people have actually commented on this, that the sort of possibly very heavy handed way that this kind of curriculum is going to be taught is really going to provoke rebellion and resistance among students who don't like to be taught these kind of moralistic things in these really heavy handed ways and that it will be ineffective by the way that it's designed. And that actually presumes that there is this liberal resistance to institutions that's already you know, in existence at schools, so that efforts to do this kind of thing, efforts to do any kind of political indoctrination one way or the other, are going to be viewed with extreme skepticism by students who are in a way primed to reject the authority of teachers and the efforts of teachers to teach things like this, right? And that would be true of any sort of parallel conservative effort, like, you know, the 1776 commission or, or, you know, various states that are trying to pass anti-CRT bills and saying like, this is how you have to teach American civics and how you have to teach American history. The presumption would be that students in those schools would be equally suspicious because they're just suspicious of moralism and they, they sort of know how to sniff out the BS. And so in a sense, like that will be a test case for whether the liberal tradition in American education still has strength and still has, you know, sort of has legs, whether or not we see a real resistance on the part of students to stuff like this. Well, certainly uh, something to follow. This is a wonderful conversation, Rita. We really appreciate you joining us. It's great to be here. If you'd like to read Rita's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.